Welcome back, podcast listeners. I'm Anastasia Uglova. Today is Monday, January 29th. After a brief Icarian flight in the new Congress, the Democrats' proposed minimum wage hike from 5.15 to 7.25 an hour went down in flames last week. Senate Republicans blocked the legislation by insisting that it include new tax breaks for restaurants and other businesses that rely on minimum wage workers. The debate over the minimum wage looks, at least for the moment, completely deadlocked. But while lawmakers duke it out in Congress, today's guest Cato Senior Fellow Peter Van Doren explains why, surprise, a minimum wage increase would hurt the very same workers it professes to help. Tell me what economists already know. What is in the literature about how wage floors affect unemployment? The best work in this is done by David Newmark, who's a professor of University of California, Irvine. And his work suggests the following, that among the affected people in the minimum wage population, that is those people whose wages are now currently at or above the current minimum but are below the proposed minimum, for that set of people, for every percentage increase in the minimum wage, and that would be from 515 to something like 7, so that's what, an almost 20% increase there would be a one to two-tenths of a percent decrease in their aggregate employment. So whatever that population is, and we actually don't know precisely how many people are involved, their aggregate employment would go down as the result of this, and or their hours would be reduced or some combination of those two things. Second, even though the aggregate employment goes down, it's possible if the data are in certain fashion that their aggregate income could rise. That is, it could be that the set of people who remain employed, they get such an increase in their income that that offsets the income losses of those people who lose hours or who lose their jobs altogether. But Newmark also shows that that is not true, that in fact, for every 1% increase in the minimum wage, for the affected population the aggregate income of that population goes down by about six-tenths of a percent. Not a one-for-one relationship, but much higher than most people think. So the income of a minimum wage person is now something on the order of $10,000 a year. So multiply that by all the people involved, and then basically for a 20-some-odd percent increase in the minimum wage is what we're talking about now from 5 to 7 over a period of years. The aggregate income of that group would go down by 6 tenths times 20, all right? So that's something like 1.2%. So a 1% aggregate income reduction for that entire population. So some of the people remain employed, and they do get a pay raise. But for all the other people, there's a reduction in hours or a reduction in their employment altogether, such that those income losses are on the order of 1.2%, given this 20-some-odd percent projected minimum wage increase. So you're saying that somehow employers will have to offset the minimum wage hike by either cutting hours or, what, raising prices? In competitive markets, employers can't just raise prices because if they could raise prices, they do it now. You don't need the action of the Congress to induce them to do that. So in other words, if wage earners are wage maximizing and employers are profit maximizing, all the assumptions of normal economics, the layperson's notion that a cost increase will force a producer to somehow raise their prices. It's not true because 
prices are set in competitive markets, you can try to raise your price, but no one will come to buy. And so you can't unilaterally raise your price. And so this minimum wage increase is, in effect, some of it is eaten in employer profits, and some of it's eaten in employment and income losses among the parties involved. And very little of it actually shows up in price increases. So who are these minimum wage workers, and what percent of the population do they constitute? Newmark argues that about 20 to 30 percent of low-wage workers are, in fact, living in households that are at or below the poverty line. The remaining two-thirds of those who earn the minimum wage are, in fact, living in households that are above the poverty line. In fact, Newmark argues that about 30 percent of low-wage workers live in households whose income are three times the poverty level or way into the middle class, and those would be suburban teenagers. So raising the minimum wage is a very, very ineffective, very blunt instrument to try to have any redistributive or equity effect. Most economists think that the earned income tax credit, in effect what President Nixon called the negative income tax way back in the 70s, that's now called the earned income tax credit. That program is now the biggest transfer program in the United States. It's much bigger than the minimum wage. It's much bigger than welfare, which are explicit payouts to people. But for those who are working, they then not only don't pay taxes, they get rebates back from the government if they're low enough income. And that is our most effective and largest transfer program now and is much more targeted at low-income households compared to the minimum wage where two-thirds of the people involved aren't even in low-income households. Do minimum wage workers experience any kind of mobility out of that income bracket? Do they at some point begin earning more, or do they tend to stay at minimum wage? It varies a lot. For many young people, the minimum wage is thought of best as a training wage, which is it's a low price which allows someone to have a peek at you and then decide whether or not you're worth anything or not. If we raise that price to a very high level, then no one takes risks on people without a resume or without skills. They, in turn, go with someone older and safer. So for those people, increases in the minimum wage are very devastating because they never get their foot in the door and no one takes a look at them. For those of us who feel badly about the economic circumstances of low-income households where the breadwinner is at minimum wage, that's the kind of person that liberals certainly would most like to help through this increase. The likelihood of them receiving additional wages over their lifetime are much lower than for teenagers because, in effect, their skill levels are rather determined and their employment record is rather determined. And the likelihood of them upgrading their income without additional training is extremely low, whereas for very young, particularly teenagers, the likelihood they'll remain at the minimum wage, given that they earn it now, one can't predict where they're going to go. But the older someone is, and they're still earning a very low wage, the likelihood of them receiving increases through market forces in the absence of any augmentation of their skills is is very, very low. So if we can more or less agree that the minimum wage will be detrimental for that income bracket, then how do we improve conditions for the the chronically destitute, not for those people that end up moving out of that income bracket? If the answer to that question were obvious or easy, I would not be here doing this, and you wouldn't be asking me this question. We'd be out there running the world. An economist at Chicago, Jim Heckman, has spent much of his entire scholarly life 
doing work in this area trying to estimate the effect of additional training and education on very low-skilled, low-income workers. And the best data we have comes from what's called the San Diego Work Experiment, in which welfare recipients were randomly assigned to various treatment groups, one of which consisted of lots of money being spent on them to augment their skill levels. And basically, the conclusion are for twenty to $30,000 expenditure per client per year, you could increase their income by something like 10%, from 9000 a year to kind of 11000 somewhere between ten dollars and $11,000 a year. In other words, it, it may be a good rate of return in a sort of investment sense, but Heckman comes up with numbers in the trillions of dollars that would have to be invested to augment the skills of the currently low-wage labor force into something that might approach middle-class status. And then it would require an enormous investment of either their funds or public funds. And then the results aren't that we double or triple their income. We'd raise their income by reasonable levels, but they'd still be, in some sense, low income relative to most middle-class Americans' beliefs about what is an adequate income. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.